Thank you all. Thank you all. Would you stand with me, please? There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian band, a devout man, one that feared God with all his house, which gave much alms to the people. That's a stained glass word for money. And prayed to God always. He saw in a vision, evidently, about the ninth hour of the day. That's three o'clock in the afternoon. An angel of God coming into him and saying unto him, Cornelius. And when he looked on him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? And he said, Thy prayers and thy alms are come up for a memorial before God. So uh, it, it could possibly be in the form of a question. Um, I'm going to approach it as a, as a statement. I want to try to explain to you today what we are really building. What we're really building. God bless you. You may be seated. Thank you for all the beautiful cards that were given to my wife and I last week. It was just fun. And I love you and I'm humbled by the way you give in so many different ways. It's common practice for countries to build memorials, usually in their capital cities. It's been a long time since I've been to Washington, D.C. To the best of my recollection, the last time I was in Washington, D.C. was 1988, the first year that our family came to Michigan. I took the girls to Washington, D.C. in July. Bad idea. (laughs) Bad idea. It was close to 100 degrees. They were too young to understand. Mickey Mouse, yes. Monticello, no. Have you ever seen Washington's memorial? Have you ever seen... Abraham Lincoln's or Jefferson's memorial. One of the most moving places I personally have ever visited was the Vietnam Memorial. They refer to it as the wall that heals. It is the only memorial in Washington, D.C. that has no steps because the designer, which was a young girl named Maya Lin knew that there would be soldiers there who needed wheelchairs. 70 granite panels that, as of today, have 53 or 58,318 names inscribed on those panels. The men and women who gave the ultimate sacrifice during the Vietnam conflict in the 60s. I can list dozens of memorials that you would probably be familiar with. One of my favorites is Rushmore. When I was a little boy, sitting on my grandmother's porch, Life magazine gave a great part of their magazine to the man that designed this and gave his life to building Mount Rushmore. I remember sitting there. I I don't know how old I was. I I was very, very young. And I told my grandmother, I'm going to go there someday, Grandma. And she said, yep, you probably will. 
So four years ago, I was speaking at the South Dakota camp meeting. And one of the pastors said, have you ever seen Mount Rushmore? And I said, no. He said, well, it's only a couple miles up the road. Would you like to go? And I I said, yes. If you've ever been, you know what I'm talking about. If you've not gone, you would do well to go. Beautiful, wide sidewalks lined with flags as you're going up that hill. I, I got very emotional and just looked out into nowhere and said, I made it, Grandma. I finally got here. I looked up the definition to memorials this week. This was the first definition, a structure designed to remind people of an event. There are at least seven mysteries in the Bible. Jesus said something amazing to his disciples in Matthew chapter 13. He said, given unto you, it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. At that time, he was talking about his parables. He, he told parables and the spiritual leaders, so-called spiritual leaders, didn't get it. And after they would leave, he would explain to them that the seed was the word and the dirt was the world. And he explained to them the mysteries of what he was teaching In 1 Timothy 3.16, it says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Now, there is a very dominant voice in, in the church world that says, You're never going to understand God. It's a blessed, holy mystery. It's not what this verse means at all. When it says, Great is the mystery of godliness, it doesn't mean... It's so big, you'll never figure it out. In fact, the original word there that's translated great is also translated magnificent, amazing. The the mystery isn't imponderable. It's amazing. And here it is. God was manifest in the flesh. That's amazing. That's amazing. It's also in Timothy that Paul wrote holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. Please notice it doesn't refer to the mystery of faith. It's the mystery of the faith. And I don't have time to explain that to you, but there is one verse in the book of Ephesians chapter 4 that says, One Lord one faith, one baptism. And of course, there is this one. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we all are going to be changed. And it talks about the return of the Lord for his church. I want to show you another mystery, which I think is very pertinent for my lesson for you today. In the last chapter of the book of Romans, Paul said, Now to him that is of power to establish you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, watch, which was kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest, and by the scriptures of the prophets, According to the commandment of the everlasting God, made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. In the next book, this is what he said in Corinthians 2. We speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. Even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world unto our glory which none of the princes of this world knew, for if they would have known the mystery, 
they would have never crucified the Lord of glory. Ephesians went on and took us a little further. This is Ephesians chapter 1. Having made known unto us the mystery of his will, (coughs) according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ. If you study the book of Acts, this is what Peter said. This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. It shall come to pass in the last days. So when did the last days start? The last days, according to Peter, started when the church was born. And when you read Galatians chapter 4, it says that in the fullness of time, in the full, not a fragment, but in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law. Why did Jesus come? Galatians 4 said he came in the fullness of times. These scriptures talk about another, another way to approach that. Yes, we're living in the last days, but the last days didn't begin a couple months ago. The last days of this age began when the church was born. So with that in mind, this is what it says, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, that's now, he wants to gather together all things in Christ. This is Ephesians 1. Here's Ephesians 3. How that by revelation, revelation, he made known unto me the mystery. As I wrote afore in few words, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ by the gospel, whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power, Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all men see, watch this, what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God who created all things by Jesus Christ. To the intent that now, under the principalities and powers in heavenly places, might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. This is a big deal in the Bible. This hidden mystery. What's the mystery that you and I Gentiles get to be in the church. They didn't see that back then. But it's been there the whole time. Listen to this verse. This is Revelation 13 and 8. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb, capital L, Lamb slain, from the foundation of the world. It's obvious 
We got a capital L here. I think you and I should both know what we're talking about. When we talk about the lamb slain, watch from the foundation of the world. You have to look at this through the eyes of a builder. Every building has a foundation. And you have to do what the writers of the New Testament did. You you have to consider the natural, visible world, the building. And just as every natural building has a natural foundation, what John and Peter and Paul taught was beneath the foundation or beneath the building of this world is the foundation of the word of God. Hebrews said, he upholds the world with the word of his power. Psalm said, he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Go back to Genesis and God said, And then it was. So this world that you and I are on right now has a foundation of the word of God. Okay? Now listen to this verse. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. W-O-R-D. The Greek word for English word is something called logos. It's where the word logic comes from. If you've ever heard of a logo for a business, it's the same thing. But the word, the logos, the Greek word, translated word, can also be translated mind, will, or plan. So I'm biblically and grammatically correct when I say to you, in the beginning was the plan. And according to Revelation 13 and 8, before God created the world, he had a plan. And in that plan was Calvary. The lamb is slain from the foundation of the world. The foundation's not the world. It's what the world sits on. But according to the word, the created world is upheld by the word of his power. And in the word was the plan for Calvary. Now watch this verse. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Having predestinated us under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ unto himself. According to the good pleasure of his will. Praise of the glory of his grace wherein made us accepted in the beloved. I'm biblically correct to say that you and I were on the mind of God before Calvary. That should give you an an insight into how blessed we are. How graced we are. How fortunate we are. In other words, before there was even a beginning... I'm going to have a church. Now, how am I going to get one of those? I'm going to have to shed my blood. That's the way that worked. Paul talks about a secret that went all the way back to the beginning of the world. He talked about hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world. I want to show you the blindness of Simon Peter. In Acts chapter 2, I'm assuming you're familiar with verse 38. 
In verse 39, he said, for the promises unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Now you and I, living as we do on the backside of Calvary and have the luxury of looking in the rearview mirror, understand (coughs) what that verse really means. But I am absolutely positive that Peter's mental model of uttermost and my definition of uttermost are totally different. And I'll prove it to you. In Acts chapter 10, Peter went to a man's house by the name of Cornelius. And the Bible said in Acts 10, 23, then called he them in and lodged them. This is, Peter was staying at a house and Cornelius and his guys come to this house. They give them lodging for the night, but in the next morning, it says, and Peter went away with them and certain brethren from Joppa accompanied him. It says in Acts chapter 11 and verse 12, he took six men with him. So here's, before you get confused, Peter has this vision of this sheet and it opens up and in the sheet are all these animals he's been taught all of his life you're not allowed to eat. There's pigs in there. There's other things according to Jewish dietary laws you're not allowed to eat. And the Lord says, rise, Peter. Slay and eat. And he said, oh, no, 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 no. Not me. It comes again. Three times he has the vision of the sheet. He is adamantly... Declaring, I don't eat this stuff. And the voice of the Lord finally said to him, don't you ever call anything that I clean common and dirty. If I clean it up, don't you ever call it dirty again. He wakes up, there's a knock at the door. The guy in whose house he's staying yells up because Peter's up on the roof. Pete, you need to come down here right now. There's a Roman soldier and some of his guys down here. Pete's about to tell his friend, you send them dogs away. I don't want anything to do with it. And then he realized we're not talking about hogs and dogs here. We're talking about people. He goes down invites him into the house. This is what the Lord told Peter before he went down the steps to meet these guys. Arise therefore and get thee down and go with them doubting nothing for I have sent them. What I'm trying to show to you is the Lord told Peter, you go with him. He didn't tell him to bring anybody else. But to cover his tracks, he brings six of his pals with him. He brings a posse with him. So that he can have probable deniability. He gets to Cornelius' house. And he starts teaching about believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. 10 and 43 of Acts says, To him give all the prophets witness that whosoever believeth in him should receive remission of sins. This is what it says in 44. While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on Cornelius and all the people that he had brought into his house. And they of the circumcision, which means Pete and his pals, 
were astonished because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. Look at that word. Astonished. This is the guy who a couple years before said, anybody can get the Holy Ghost. You, your kids, your grandkids, even as people as far away from God as you can think of. I'm convinced that when Peter said that in Acts 2.39, his mental model of everybody was Jews. But now, he is seeing something happen that he's having a hard time wrapping his brain around. As a matter of fact, this is where you read an interesting scripture where he said, can any man forbid water? that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Ghost as we do. There's two ways to look at that. <clears throat> there is, uh, you guys got any reason why we shouldn't do this? Or would you guys think up something fast? Because if you don't come up with a good excuse, we're going to have to baptize these people. And I don't need to tell you when we get back home, we're going to get our rear end hanged and tended to us in a brown paper bag. They baptized them. That's Acts 10. Now you go to Acts 11. What does it say? And when Peter was come up to Jerusalem, they that were of the circumcision, which means the Jews, contended with him. Thou wentest in to men uncircumcised and you had dinner with them. And then Pete has to say, uh, <clears throat> it gets worse than that. We didn't just have dinner. We had a little Bible study. I know you're going to have a rough time understanding this. And people got the Holy Ghost just like you and I did. <clears throat> and as I began to speak, the Holy Ghost fell on them as on us at the beginning. Now I know, and I've taught you for years, that the first Gentile to be baptized was the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. However, using the book of Acts as, as our guide, the great harvest among the Gentile people did not begin until Acts 10. Cornelius and his household, Oikos, everybody in his circle of influence, were filled with the Holy Ghost and baptized. I'm, I'm trying to explain to you the history and the significance of this event. This was a secret. This, this was a mystery hidden from people all the way from the beginning. But from the beginning, God intended his church to include all nations, all kindreds, all people, all tongues. <laughs> John said it like that in Revelation 7, four, four different ways, all nations, all kindreds, all people, all tongues. Let there be no doubt. Everyone, different cultures, different classes, different kin, somebody from everywhere. Look what it says in Revelation 7 and 9. A multitude which nobody could number. You couldn't count them. It fulfills the prophecy and the promise given to Abraham in Genesis 12. I'm going to give you so many kids. You might as well try and count every grain of sand on every beach in the world. And when you think you've done that, start looking at night and try and count the stars. I'm going to give you children as more and as much and as plentiful as the sand by the sea and the stars in the heavens. 
Now, counting stars in Detroit ain't real hard because you have so much ambient light, you, you, might, you might get to see a half a dozen or so. But get away from the ambient light of this city. <clears throat> Drive an hour or two north and look up at midnight and watch what you see. Good luck trying to count the stars. A multitude that nobody could number. Do you under? It's a big deal. So when Cornelius and his household are filled with the spirit and baptized in the name of the Lord, a massive piece of the divine puzzle falls into place. But why, why did that happen? Because this was a praying man and a giving man. Cornelius, your prayers and your giving have come up as a memorial before the Lord. It wasn't just his praying. It was his prayer and his giving. I know that Jesus said, you'll receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. He said that in Acts chapter 1 and 8. My problem is that too many Pentecostals equate power with miracles, signs, and wonders. Ladies and gentlemen, you don't need the Holy Ghost to do miracles, signs, and wonders. I'll prove it to you. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sent them out in pairs and they did miracles and came back and said, even the devils are subject unto us by your name. And he said, you've misplaced and mistaken what really matters. What matters are not the miracles. What matters is what's happened in your life. Your name is written in the book. Ladies and gentlemen, these people did miracles before they were ever filled with the Holy Ghost. And he said, you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. So I, I understand what he's talking about. Too many churches and too many people are rejoicing and asking for the wrong thing. Listen to this verse. And hope maketh not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our heart by the Holy Ghost. Not the love for God. The love of God. That's power. The power that you received when you were filled with the Holy Ghost was not the power to do miracles. The power that you received from God was to manifest his divine nature. It wasn't power that got the attention of the world. It was the way those people acted. It was not only the way they acted with one another, but the way they interacted in their city. They were not marooned on their own little self-righteous Pentecostal island, but acted they had favor with the people. For God so loved the world that he gave. Did you get the revelation? God loved, he gave. So what the world, and when the world sees us giving, I'm not just talking about money, but money's a part of it. That's why there's such a battle between giving financially to this project. Because the Bible said in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Why? <laughs> because our flesh is greedy. Our flesh is selfish. Which one are you walking after? Which one are you following? Which one are you chasing? Don't chase the flesh. Chase 
the spirit. Don't go after the flesh. Go after the spirit. Why does the enemy fight us so much on issue? Because it's so obvious in the Bible that giving opens a portal into the supernatural. When we give, it not only gets the attention of God as it did to Cornelius. Cornelius, it wasn't just your praying that's got me excited. It's your prayer coupled with your giving. That's why I'm going to use you and your household to begin the greatest harvest the world has ever known. I've heard it misquoted for years. The Bible talks about having love. It doesn't say one for another. But in Thessalonians 3 and 12, it says love one toward another. Not for another, toward another. This is not an attitude. This is an action. You're going toward them. You're going after them. You are moving. I'm here to ask you a question. And in answering that question, help you to understand what are we really building here? We're not just building a building. We are praying and we are giving. And like Cornelius did, we are building a memorial. A memorial. And I'm not talking about a building on that piece of grass. Because a memorial is something that you did as a result of something in the past. That building, ladies and gentlemen, what is it? (laughs) It's a memorial of the praying and the giving that not only we have done and are doing, but will continue to do. And it is that praying coupled with that kind of giving that will open a portal into the miraculous and the supernatural. You want miracles? Pray and give. You want signs? Pray and give. You want to see God do something amazing? Pray and give. That building is a structure that's being erected to commemorate an event. This is not just about a building. That building is a visible manifestation of a people that understand the power of prayer coupled with giving. That's what we're building. We're not just building a building. We're building a witness. We're building a testimony. These are people that pray and give and will continue to pray and give and pray and give. Why? Because just as Cornelius' house was used to bring the greatest harvest that world knew, God can use this church to play a role in the greatest harvest. That's what we're building. Every dollar that you give, every dime that you spend, every hour that you pray, what are you doing? We're building a memorial that will get the attention of God. God is not impressed by this building we're about to build. There are nicer buildings than we're about to build all over this city. But I tell you what does get his attention. Prayer coupled with sacrificial giving because that's when you manifest his divine nature. God loved, so he gave. And if we really claim to love God, we'll be givers. The Bible says, for a great door and effectual is opened unto me. Yet there's a lot of adversaries. This is what it says in the NIV. Because a great door for effective work has been opened to me. And there are a lot of people who oppose it. Effectual. When this door gets opened, 
we will do effective ministry. Not just effort, not just activity. It's the same word used for prayer. The effectual, fervent prayer of righteous people availeth. Prayer coupled with giving will open a door that will enable us to be more effective than we've ever been before. What we're doing matters. It makes a difference. That's why we're not just building a building. We are building effective ministry that's going to make a difference. It avails. It makes a difference. In 1967, led by Egyptians, King Nasser, Syria and Egypt coupled together to come against this tiny nation of Israel. It's known as the Six-Day War. They literally beat one of the largest armies in the world in six days and still had enough time to take off for Sabbath at the end of the week. God wasn't even going to let them fight seven days. We're going to mop this up in six days. But in the beginning, the odds were impossible. Some of you may know this name. His name was Moshe Diane. He later became the prime minister of Israel. But at that time, he was the general leading Israel's armed services. And he told the prime minister, I fear for the third temple. I wish I had time. It's a great story. It's not real spiritual, but it's historical. When we detonated the first nuclear weapon in 1945, the world of warfare changed. Interestingly enough, because the leadership of the United States was so understood the value of Israel, we had our Secret Service people steal plutonium and give it to the nation of Israel so they could have their own nuclear weapon. And until just recently, the plans and the it was released by, by, by a, an, an, a, just a mad employee. There's something called Demona, which is the base of Israel's nuclear activity. Seven stories underground. Nobody knew they had it. But they had it in the 50s. And when the war occurred in 1967, they literally took that bomb out of their warehouse and loaded it onto a plane and it flew around and around because Moshe Diane told the prime minister, I don't think we're going to make it. I fear for the third temple. When I read that, I wondered what in the world was he talking about? So I spent some time. The first temple was, of course, the temple of Solomon. The second temple was known as the temple of Herod. Herod's temple was destroyed, and so was Solomon's. But to an Orthodox Jew, the third temple is the nation of Israel. Not a building, a nation. This was our first temple on this site. That will be our second one. What we're after is the third temple. We're after a nation. We're after something much bigger than something that we can put on a couple acres of dirt. We want that to be ground zero. We want that to be the epicenter of the ministry, the effective ministry of the church in this community and in this area. You've done well. Don't get lazy now. You have to stay disciplined with me for at least 30 more months. We have got to get to that level. If we can do that, we will begin in the spring of 2025. And by the end of the next year, we'll have another building. 
We'll be able to give, of course, during that 14 to 16 months while that building is being erected. But I want you to understand what we're building. It's not just a church house. We're building a memorial because of our prayer and our giving. And if you will let not the love for God, I don't know. I don't want to know if you love God. I want to know if you're willing to let God love through you. Stand. Stand. Well, they're going to take that down. In Jesus' name, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. That's the real miracle. See, the disciples fought all during the three and a half years that Jesus ministered. Jesus said, hey, what were you fighting about while we were walking here? And they went. And he said, well, let me refresh your memory. You wondered who was going to be the greatest. He said, let me give you a little lesson on greatness. Whoever serves the most, I'll magnify. If you'll humble yourself, I'll exalt you. You exalt yourself and I'll humble you. The first are going to be last, and the last are going to be first. They're always fighting about it. The mother of James and John begging for Jesus to reserve his seat on his right and left for her boys. It's all through there. But when the Holy Ghost was poured out, you got, you got to realize Judas Iscariot, that, that, that's juicy stuff, folks. I mean, come on, man. Hanging yourself, the rope breaks, you fall and you splash like a watermelon on the rocks below. But, you know, in, in, in literature, or especially in newspapers, they say if it bleeds, it leads. So the bloodiest, nastiest thing, that's what you want on the front page. Guess what happens after the Holy Ghost is poured out? Nobody mentions Judas ever again. They just voted another guy and they went on because they didn't care who was in charge. They didn't care who was going to be the greatest. Why? Because for three and a half years, Jesus taught them and then he filled them with his love. Our problem is we get the Holy Ghost, but nobody ever challenges us or teaches us that we need to love. And by the time we finally do have some goofy guy in November to get up in front of you and say, we got to love, say, not me, not me. Jesus taught him for three and a half years and then filled him with power. We get the Holy Ghost, but we don't know what we're supposed to do with it. Ladies and gentlemen, this is our challenge. That first church loved, so they gave. So they gave. I don't know any better way to end this than with that.
Saudi 